every week we talk to dozens of SaaS founders and operators about the inner workings of growing a business, from the day-to-day minutiae, to inspiration, to the tough decisions, and the mistakes made along the way. You're listening to the SaaS Open Mic Podcast. My name is Olivia Jarvis. Head over to chartmogul.com for more content like this and easy access to your SaaS metrics in just a few clicks. That's chartmogul.com. This week's guest is Jeb Banner, the CEO and co-founder of Boardable, a board management software company serving nonprofits and businesses around the world. He previously was the CEO of Smallbox, a creative agency he co-founded in 2006. Jeb graduated from Indiana University, Bloomington in 1996. He is also the founder of Musical Family Tree, a nonprofit dedicated to spreading Indiana music, as well as the co-founder and past chair of The Speakeasy, an entrepreneurial co-working nonprofit located in Indianapolis. Along the way, Jeb has co-founded or invested in a number of other Indianapolis-based businesses. He lives on the north side of Indianapolis with his family, and in his spare time, he collects vinyl records, forages mushrooms, records music, and cooks as much as possible. Enjoy my chat with Jeb Banner. Okay, Jeb, thanks so much for joining me today. Please start with who you are and where you are. My name is Jeb Banner. I'm in the role of CEO at Boardable, a board management software company working mostly with nonprofits around the world. And I am here in Indianapolis at our offices in the village of Broad Ripple. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much for coming today. You and I chatted a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I was very taken by your very interesting and colorful past that has led you to where you are. And I'm excited for this dialogue. You have a pretty interesting professional history. You've uh, bought and sold records on eBay. You started an auction house, and you founded your own nonprofit, to name quite a few things. But... um, do you want to give us a bit of a sense of your journey and what what brought you to where you are at Boardable today? Yeah, I you know I I was raised by an entrepreneur, but I had no interest growing up in becoming one. I thought I was going to be a rock star, you know, play guitar, playing guitar about twelve years old, and I was in bands through high school. I mean, I was doing entrepreneurial things like I was throwing you know concerts in my basement and having cover fees and paying bands and. I actually did a TED Talk that you can find out there. It's everything I need to know about business I learned from being in a band. And you really do learn a lot. You learn how to work with a team, how to lead, how to follow, how to, you know, um, you know, get money, pull money together to, to put out, you know, records and things like that. So I went to college in Bloomington. I was an English major, you know, again, just not really leaning into anything. I, I was resisting my grown-up years, spent six years in college working part-time here and there at record stores, at a rock club where I was a booking agent and the janitor and uh, just kind of really just putting off adulthood as long as I could. Uh, it finally found me. Um, I moved to Indianapolis after college and uh, got involved in the antique world. And, you know, one day uh, the guy I was working for is like, hey, you know, all that stuff you bought, you know, that you thought you were going to sell me? I'm not going to buy it, but you should put it on eBay. And so I, within, within a month of that, I was buying and selling on eBay. And then I bought a big record collection shortly after that, thanks to a loan from my father. And, uh, and then within six, seven months of that, I had started my first business called Stuff E. So stuff with an E at the end, you know, back then you put an E on something. This is around 2000. And, uh, I hired a bunch of my musician friends and, we were running a business and uh, all my entrepreneurial g- genetics and sort of the, the training that I didn't realize I was getting from my dad growing up kicked in. Right. And uh, 
That then led to a second business, which was a partner with that, that original employer in the antiques business, an auction house called Antique Helper. It's now called Ripley's Auctions. And uh, we were the first uh, auction house to do eBay live auctions along with live bidding. Uh, and that we, we went from being about $100,000 business to $3 million, uh, in the course of three years. Wow. But it was intense. And, you know, so the, around the time I, I got married, I started having kids, and I was working seven days a week. I was burning out. And, uh, uh, but I was also building websites on the side. I started my first nonprofit, Musical Family Tree, which was all about archiving Indiana music. And that turned into a community and eventually its own nonprofit. And I really enjoyed building that website. And so I started a, a company really focused on websites called Smallbox in 2006. I, I thought, what do I want to be? And I thought about what I didn't want to be. I don't want to be a big box company. And I thought about my iPod at the time, which had as many songs as my record collection. And I was like, I want to be a small box company. Hmm. So uh, that company's still going. Different CEO grew uh, and, and did quite well. Got into all kinds of different things. We started building product really out of the gate uh, on the side. And we finally came across an opportunity um, with our local United Way to build a board portal. And uh, they initially said, hey, can you just buy, build it for us? Then we realized that I, at that point, started a second nonprofit. And I'd been the chair of both. I was like, you know what? A lot of nonprofits have this problem. They're, they're managing their boards with what we call digital duct tape, you know, like Dropbox and email and attachments. It's just a mess. So we built Boardable and man, it took off. And so, Within a year, I transitioned out of my CEO role. My wife actually took over that role for two years. And, and that's a whole nother story. It's, it's a pretty interesting one. I don't recommend handing a business off to your wife, but we got through it. We're still together and <laughs> strong, stronger for it. And then Boardable, uh, we did some funding. And then, you know, we've really been growing rapidly since then. So that's a little snapshot of, of my journey. And through it, I've stayed a musician and I have a studio and a little record label we run on the side. And, try to do that at least once a week, do music. Very cool. So you were running away from entrepreneurial, from the entrepreneurial world, only to run right into it. Is that <laughs> accurate? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like my destiny, you know, it's like, I was just yeah. like, no, man, that's not cool. I want to be a rock star. You're not, I'm not a rock star, but I wanted to be in the music business. Right. But it, I wasn't good enough, to be honest. And I was good enough at business. So, and also I really like it. Very cool. Now tell me with Boardable, are your customers nonprofits? Are you working directly with nonprofits and selling to nonprofits? Yes, we are. So about 80% of our customers are nonprofits. And uh, we're in, I think we looked at about 40 countries now. So all over the world, mostly the US, about 80% in the US, the rest are uh, all over the world. But the 20% are, are for profits. And we certainly are happy to serve them as well. Our heart is really in serving the nonprofits out there that so often struggle with technology because technology is not built for them. It's often built for businesses. And a nonprofit board is much more complicated than a for-profit board. Mm -hmm. So we have five board members. Nonprofits will sometimes have five employees yeah. and have 25 board members. So that's a, that's a lot of herding of cats for a small team. For sure. And different ranging of, or ranges of, of technical savviness and, and technical aptitude. I've definitely experience this in my day. I mean, I, I have a good friend that sells Salesforce to nonprofits, which I think is just hilarious because that is such a ginormous tool for maybe for larger nonprofits that would work, but for a mom and pop shop nonprofit or a foundation, that feels like a really, really challenging technical obstacle. Um, so I, I empathize with, 
with your market. That's a really, really interesting one. I kind of want to touch on this. We, we've talked to a lot of founders and SaaS operators for the majority of this season, and we've yet to really cover the move from being in a service-based business and deciding to take it to a software solution. I think this is a really poignant topic, and I'd love to get the story on how Boardable was built and the lessons that you kind of touched on and learned along the way. But let's kind of go back to basics and start with ideation. How did you go from taking this idea or taking this challenge and deciding to build a software offering? offering? Where did this come from? Yeah, so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Smallbox, uh, my business partner and I, Joe, we kept trying to build product. We kept failing. Um, and I'll tell you kind of why we failed. It just didn't have the right alchemy, the right ingredients. Either we weren't solving the right problem or we weren't giving it the dedicated resources it needed. It was, it was always, it was always the back burner. And this is the problem. I, I, I know so many service businesses, so many creative agencies that struggle with this is they see these opportunities because of the, the uh, window they have through the client work they do into a problem that a lot of people have, they see an opportunity to solve that problem. They have the technical staff to go build the solution, but they don't know how to get that done in the whirlwind of their daily business. Mm-hmm. Because everything, you know, it, when, you're, when you're running a service business, you're all about payroll and cash flow. It's really, it's every single month and every single quarter is like, hey, we gotta make sure that we, we have enough to eat, right? Right. Um, and so if something comes along that threatens that, it's not long before that thing uh, gets pushed to the back. And that's just what we did about 10 times. We built a number of tools, content management solutions. We built uh, employee engagement tools, um, sales tools, and they were really good tools. We could never get them from the tool to the product. And that's mm-hmm. a big leap. And we didn't know how to either. But we kept trying to do it within the agency. and. I think the reason is, and this is, I don't want to blame Basecamp too much for this because I think just because they figured this out doesn't mean that other ones can't. But a lot of creative agencies looked at 37 Signals, which was the parent company of Basecamp, and said, hey, that's a great model. We get in there, we see a problem, we see a problem we have, our clients have, we solve that problem, we go from being services to SaaS. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, we then build a company of real value and, 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 and it's a lot more fun too. Uh, I, I would say having customers is very different than having clients and we can mm-hmm. dig into that in a minute. But that chasm is really hard to cross because of the cash flow dynamic of a service business. The need to constantly close business because you're project-based, you're not reoccurring revenue. So we fought that for a decade. And finally, what we found worked is that we spun out another business and a business that just does software. And then we took that opportunity with United Way and we, we went out on a limb and we built an MVP and we had it completely separated from Smallbox. We had it operationally separate. Uh, we were able to do some funding via Smallbox at the time. That was good, but um, we really kept it separate. And that was the, the thing that pushed us kind of over the hill, uh, along with just being the right solution at the right time. So it was a, it was a key lesson, the key learning that you just cannot try to s- sort of sneak a product company into a service business. It has to have its own space. It sounds like you're describing prioritization, right? And, and being able to really have the, the time cap- capacity and space to look at something and run with it. 
Do you think that that really was what propelled Boardable is once you pulled it out of the business and were able to put priority and people on it, that's when it started to sing? Yeah, I think I think you have to have at least one person, if not several people, get up every day and think about solving that problem to have a successful product business. If you're trying to bake it in to the 12 problems you're trying to solve with your other business, it just generally it, it, it's orphan. So the focus of having it really on an island, we'd done it enough times, we'd failed enough times to know that it just wasn't going to work anymore. So we really had to like build a real wall around the business, um, the early business, and say, you know what, we're just going to find a way to, to prop this up however we can long enough to where we have some paying customers. And that was really the first big box to check. Once you start having people that are not your friends pay you money, you know that you have a business. <laughs> and you know, it seems simple, but it's such a big hurdle to cross. And uh, we got to that, you know, uh, in early 2017. And that's when we started raising money. So we're like, okay, we, we've gotten to that threshold. Let's go get some cash. Amazing. I want to talk about your fundraising in just a moment here. I'm curious because I talk to founders all the time and I, I love hearing founder stories about how the idea went from being an idea to then being something that someone started working on. You said that there has to be a person that kind of wakes up every day and thinks about this problem. Tell me who that person was. Was it you? Was it a technical engineer? Was it a product manager? Who was that person that woke up every day and thought, okay, let's solve this? Yeah, the interesting thing is it wasn't me because I was running Smallbox and that was the thing that was keeping everything afloat. That was what was paying the bills. It was Joe, my business partner at Smallbox, the, the technical co-founder who had never been on a board, never, never probably, you know, really served it or not. I mean, a little volunteer work didn't really, but he knew how to build off of the specs that he was given. And he's a really intuitive engineer. And to this day, most of the product is designed and built by Joe. We've added a full team of, of engineers and designers. And now we're starting to get to that 2.0, if you will. But uh, he just really intuitively, he actually built it twice. He built it once as a prototype MVP. And then we learned a lot by giving it free to some customers, so some free customers. And then we took the feedback and we built it again. Uh, and that all happened in the course of about four months. And I highly recommend that cycle of just planning to build it twice because you're going to learn so much about the data structure and, and just general interactivity. Uh, you don't want to have too much tech debt, you know, if you can avoid it going forward. But um, so he really was the guy that got up every day. And then we brought in some other folks around sales and around project product management pretty early on. But for about six months, it was Joe. And then the rest of the founders were involved. And we kind of together were fractionally one whole uh, employee, but it was Joe who was really driving the, the, the innovation. Awesome. Technical co-founders. So, so, so important. So important. So many great, I, I talk to people all the time, great ideas, great opportunities, great understanding of a space. They don't have a technical co-founder. And I say to them, don't do anything until you find that person. Totally. Because you, I've seen so many people fail. They go out and hire um, an agency to do that build for them. The agency just doesn't care the way a technical co-founder does about the problem. Yeah, they just—they're just not invested in the same way. They're getting up and they're thinking about ten different th things, not one. You need somebody to be obsessed with that one problem and to like 
spend nights and weekends getting it to where it works in the right way. You need that customer feedback going directly to that person as much as possible. Oh, totally. The best SaaS businesses that I've spoken to over the course of my you know, almost 10 years in this industry, and then my almost three years here at Tremogul have been this combination of a, a technical and a non-technical kind of dynamic, whether that be two people, whether that be four people, but the best businesses that really sing have products that are built by technical brains that understand and are focused on that problem and really understand the why. Why are we building this? Who is it for? What are we servicing? What is the market asking for? Those truly, truly are the best products. So fundraising is an important one that I want to touch on here because I think it's interesting. You said that you initially went out and you raised some money to kind of prove that people were buying this beyond your friends. Let's talk about the process of fundraising. This is a very SaaS-oriented process that a lot of people have to navigate and have a lot of questions about. Let's talk about that first fundraise. Were there initial lessons in that first fundraise where you kind of like walked in thinking you knew what you were talking about and somebody <laughs> threw you a curveball? Well, first off, I had no idea what I was talking about and I had never raised money before. I'd always bootstrapped everything I'd ever done. And so the idea of asking people to write checks to this, you know, fledgling business with like, you know, 10 customers just seemed borderline absurd, mm-hmm. especially when we were looking at a pre-money valuation in the millions. But I had fortunately a really good partner on that journey, which is Andy Clark, one of our co-founders who had been there and done it with exact target and another, other number of other businesses, you know, been an early or founder employee at a number of places. And he really understood it. And we teamed up with a great legal firm. And I just can't emphasize this enough. You really need to have a good legal partner when you go into fundraising. And we did that. And that was, that was a game changer for us. Um, because they understand how to structure these deals. They understand how to talk the language of the investor. But to have a co-founder that's been there and done it, I can be that person now, but I was not that person then. And so I had to get a lot of coaching and I had to have a, have a coachable mindset because I didn't, I really was in a beginner's mindset really because I didn't know what I was doing. Now, that being said, we were fortunate to have a really strong network of folks in town because of the work we'd done um, in the tech community doing a nonprofit called the Speakeasy, which was the first co-working space in Indiana, Indiana and it served the tech community. So we were very heavily networked. Uh, Andy and I did that with a couple other folks. And so that really was the launch pad for a lot of our fundraising were those relationships that we built up over the years. And I was shocked by how easy some of it was. Um, and that's not everyone's experience. So I don't want to paint a rosy picture but I think the point here is that think if you're looking to start a business in four years, build the relationships now. Those relationships are going to be what really opens the door and gets the, the quick yeses because as much as you can show them charts and, and show them customers and everything else, they're really betting on you. Totally. And if they, they feel good about you and they feel they see that you've had a record of success and they feel that you're a person with integrity then it's the terms need to be negotiated and we can talk terms a little bit. But I found that the fundraising part was not that difficult for us because of the fact that we had built a platform uh, in that community of people that were excited to bet on us. And unfortunately, they, they've been, been you know, rewarded for that bet so far. But um, that was my early experience. I just, honestly, I just went out and started having informational interviews. I think this is a really good way to pitch. Oh, yeah. Just, hey, here's what we're doing. Here's what we see. I often would be with people say, who should I talk to? 
And they said, well, well, can I invest? <laughs> totally. That's the uh, best answer. Right, right. So often people would invest after one meeting uh, um, just because our approach was, was so passive in a lot of ways. Uh, it was it was more, you know, it's the, it's the old adage in nonprofit world. Ask me for money, I'll give you advice. Ask me for advice, I'll give you money. It's very similar in the fundraising dynamic. You go ask people for advice, they'll say, hey, uh, here's some advice. Here's two people to talk to, and can I write you a check? And we saw that happen, and um, it was it was it was a, a, a nice surprise. Amazing. Well, I mean, congratulations! You just raised your seed Series A, excuse me, in December of last year. How was that experience compared to those initial informational interviews where you were going in green? I mean, eight million bucks is nothing to shake a stick at. That's a lot of money. <laughs> How yeah, was that experience? It was really good. Um, we had, you know, I had the conversation with the lead investor, Base Ten Reggie over there, who's just a fabulous guy. Before we had even decided to raise, and he reached out to me and he told me things about the board management space that I didn't know. And, He'd done all this research and he was so educated and they were such a great dynamic firm. I can't say enough good things about Base 10. Um, they're out of San Francisco. And so we just started talking to each other and just kind of getting to know each other. And then when we decided to start the, the process of doing the round, he was right there at the top of the list. And we had a number of other, you know, folks put, put in a bid and, and, you know, we, but we, we felt like we had good terms with them and, we tweaked them a little bit, of course, but um, they were great. And and then before that, we did we did we did a couple rounds with uh, High Alpha here in town, who who we've known a long time through through a number of different connections, and and they've been fantastic too. I I don't know what the word is, whether it's blessed or, or fortunate, but you know it feels like the right people have shown up at the right times uh, with the right money. Um, that's not everyone's experience, and that's and so I don't want to paint the wrong picture. But I will say this, that, that um, you know, if you're doing something that's, that's solving a real problem and you're seeing real growth, there's an awful lot of money out there right now. And if you are running with a team that is um, uh, attractive on, on a talent level, that's important too. And that's not about me as much as it is about the people that I bring into those conversations. Yeah. Uh, and that's a big part of what they're investing in again. So the Series A process went faster than we expected, and we ended up uh, getting to that that you know partner pretty quickly. The closing, though, and the diligence is brutal. Grueling. Brutal. Uh, yeah. Just I mean, and nothing. I mean, it's not their fault. It's just you know that's when the attorneys get involved, and boy, those attorneys they love to nitpick and go through everything. And you're spending instead of spending your days growing the business, you're spending your days. <laughs> responding to inquiries and you know all this stuff and um and that's where uh boy there could be a product come out there to streamline diligence i i mm -hmm. would love to see that happen because it can be improved but um that's a tough that's a tough journey it takes usually it took us about oh, two and a half three months to go through that wow. process it was a pain I always get that we're finalizing our funding from founders I, I hear this all the time right when I'm speaking to founders and that's me just going, okay, great. I'll talk to you in a month to three. Good luck yeah, finalizing. Because yeah. it truly is like the finalization that takes the longest. Plan on it. Yeah. I mean, we spent less time getting to the partner than we did finalizing. And I think that, you know, fortunately, we had good cash reserves. Mm -hmm. But boy, you don't want to have your back against the wall when you're in that situation. Because when you get down to pushing, pushing against terms, 
you need to know that if you if you if the deal falls apart, you're not screwed. Yeah. And there there's opportunistic firms out there that will kind of play that game. Base ten is not one of them. Neither is high alpha. They're they're legit. But there's folks out there that will play that game of just trying to push you against the wall, and then you kind of fall apart, and you have to take you know agree to rights and different terms that that are unfavorable to the business. Fundraising isn't for the faint of heart. It is a very, very challenging process. And I think a lot of founders face this. And I mean, we have a lot of um, founders in our our mogul.io group. And this is often conversations. How do I navigate this? How do I deal with these points? I kind of want to segue that a little bit because you said something early on about, you know, people are also betting on you. They're betting on yourself, your co-founders. Yes, they're betting on the product and what you're you're solving, but they're really, really taking a chance on you as a leader. How did you shift and change yourself as a leader becoming a CEO of a software business compared to maybe how you were running your services businesses before? Yeah, that's a great question. And that that is a question I've actually thought about quite a bit recently, of just how I've had to change. I, I firmly believe that the growth of your company and the potential of your company is closely tied to your growth and how much you can change and, and mature as a leader. And that as you go through those changes, you unlock the growth potential in your business. And so often we think, no, I just need to work harder. I need to, I need to slam my head against this wall and then it's going to open up. And so there's days where you got to knock the wall down with force. I, I don't disagree, but. So much of what I found in my journey is the, the personal investments I had to make. And, and really, I started a meditation practice in 2016, right around the same time. And that, that increased mindfulness that came into my life, that the ability to be more present, to stay calmer in the eye of the storm. These are, these are things that came along with this transition. More specifically, though, to going from service businesses to SaaS, it's a big mindset shift to go from worrying about payroll and closing out each month to like, you know, kind of make, make it through the feast or famine cycles to suddenly having millions of dollars on the, on, on the books and burning cash pretty aggressively. You totally. know, uh, and, and with the expectation that you're supposed to. So you really have to, you have to go, go from, you, you can become, I think, you know, uh, penny wise and pound foolish, as, as they say, if you're not careful. Uh, and I struggle with that a lot of like, I have this desire to, to run a pretty, pretty frugal business mm-hmm. coming from a service background. But actually, if you, if you run a SaaS business in the right way, you're going to spend dumb money. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to make bad hires. You're going to hire people that you shouldn't hire. And then they're not going to work out and you're going to have to let them go pretty quickly you're going to make marketing spends that completely fizzle out. You may spend, you know, we spent almost $100,000 on a rebranding effort that we, we at the end of it, ditched the entire thing. It's like, that's, t- I mean, as a service business, you can't even imagine doing something like that. Totally. Like that's devastating to a startup company. You're like, okay, let's keep moving. So it's like this constant shedding of the skin that's very different than the um, Sisyphusian sort of like every month we climb the mountain and come back down, you know, that cycle. If you're building a snowball with, with SaaS, right? And so it's just all about growing that reoccurring revenue versus, you know, constantly having to go out there and resell the same customers over and over. That's a big mindset shift. And I'm still in the process of making it. Do you have people around you that do that really well? Do you have people on your co-founding team or, or hires that you've made that have made that transition easier for you? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Andy Clark, again, co-founder, now our COO, he came in full-time beginning of this year uh, after the Series A. Um, Jeff Middlesworth, a chief product officer, you know, very early employee at Exact Target, formerly uh, chief product officer at Emma, the email company, just really experienced, seen, seen it all, been there and done it. It's about once a week where I say to those guys, like, I have no idea. I'm like, like, I've never been here before. I just don't know. Like, I know how to like show up as a leader. And I know how to say I don't know something. And I know how to like, you know, look at a situation and tell you what I think. But I don't necessarily know how to navigate some of the turns that we're in right now. But I also have a lot of friends through my CEO network that have been through this as well. First time SaaS CEOs. And it's pretty common uh, for, for a SaaS CEO to never have done it before. And it's a little lonely at times, but having those two people side me along with a lot of really talented team, a lot of you know, SaaS veterans really helps, helps me make those decisions in a way where I don't feel like I'm, I'm just guessing. Totally. There's nothing more appealing to me as an employee of a SaaS business than hearing a CEO say, you know, I don't know this, but we have a great team of people who do have experience here or whatever it might be. There's a humility aspect that comes with that. And I think that sometimes the humility can sometimes be lost in SaaS because people are really just trying to drive hard and drive fast to ensure that they kind of stay alive. But you, you mentioned your meditation practice. It's the, it's the power of slowing down when things ask you to speed up that really ends up becoming powerful. There's a really interesting point there, if I can just make it real quick, Please? the tension between confidence and vulnerability. And it's something that I struggle with a lot of like, well, I am confident about many areas of the business. I'm very confident. But I also am vulnerable. I try to seek to be vulnerable about the things I don't know. And sometimes I get a little bit concerned that my vulnerability is a weakness mm. because it, it signals that I don't know what he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know that, you know, like the CEO should have the answer. That's the archetype. So that's something I, I, I struggle with and try to manage and, and have an open dialogue with, with myself and my, my uh, you know, fellow execs. It's like, hey, you know, we're confident, but we're also, you know, vulnerable about the things that we're not confident about. That's a tricky balance. Well, imposter syndrome is real. It runs up the chain oh, and yeah. down the chain. We've all got a piece of it in us, right? Absolutely. Very cool. I appreciate you being honest about that. I think that that's really, really admirable. Last question, just because I'm kind of curious. Is there something that you wish you knew from the beginning that you would tell founders that are kind of starting this journey? I mean, we've got lots of early stage businesses that we talk to at ChartMogul that are really trying to become something in the SaaS world. Pieces of advice, words of wisdom. You're a pretty wise guy, Jeb. I'm, I'm curious what you might come out with here. Oh, boy. Pressure's on. You know, it's so specific to the situation you're in. Uh, it's hard. I, I thought about this question when I saw it in the brief. Um, so I'll try to answer it as, as, as widely as possible. I think that there is a real uh, value in tuning yourself to the energy of the business and the momentum of the business and letting that energy momentum carry you forward um, versus trying to sort of push it a direction because of either an ego reason or a shiny object reason but this that that wonderful momentum that a business starts to have, leaning into that momentum, not fighting it, just because maybe you're a little restless. Uh, that's something that I struggle with. You know, I think that uh, if I could go back and do it all again, I would probably um, make some more senior hires more quickly. 
I probably would have hired the, that that senior level talent earlier and got them in. I think that in some ways I was a little scared of bringing in people smarter and better than me. When I think when I would like dig into my, you know, true feelings. Um, but boy, don't be afraid of bringing in people better than you. It's such a great experience when you kind of let go and let them be the the talent that they are in the business. So I'd say hire up in terms of higher senior early. It's also a great time to give them some good equity too. Um, don't be stingy with the equity. You want people invested in that business. And when people leave the business, leave on good terms. Uh, the employer brand situation right now with where talent is, is so critical. I think about everybody that leaves the, the, the business as ambassadors for us. And so even if it's something where we're saying it's time for them to leave, uh, I want them to feel like they can celebrate their time with us. And so, you know, really think, be very intentional about that employee experience. I think I could have done better with that early on. And I, I think we're getting better at that, but I could ramble on for a while, but those are some things that come to mind. Amazing. I really, really appreciate your insights, Jeb. I think that they, they run pretty deep. Where can people find you? Where can people get in touch with you? Are you on Twitter? Yeah. So um, my parents and they're like, you know, infinite wisdom and, and back in the 1970s gave me a name that's perfect for Google. So, so you, <laughs> you can just type my name in uh, Jeb Banner and um, you'll find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram. Uh, I don't do a whole lot of social media in terms of Facebook. Um, definitely LinkedIn, um, Twitter is where I'm most active. I really enjoy Twitter. It's a lot of fun. I've, I'd love to interact with people there and feel free to shoot me questions and um and, uh, you know, I, I want to be a resource specifically to people that are at the beginning stage of this journey since, you know, it's still pretty fresh to me and, and uh, I don't have all the answers, but I'm happy to share share with people and, and jump on a phone call even and just talk through what's going on. Bit of a pay it forward mentality. For sure. Awesome. We actually, um, this is a bit of a plug for us. We have a, a Slack community called mogul.io. And it's namely founders and CEOs. And a lot of founders are asking each other tough questions. And they range from, you know, early stage founders right through to series A through series C. Please join that community. And I'm sure people will find you on there to try and ask you some questions. Thank you. I appreciate the invite. Of course. Jeb, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Hopefully we will chat to you again soon. And thanks for your time. Thanks, Olivia. I really enjoyed talking to you. Likewise. If you enjoyed this week's episode of the SaaS Open Mic Podcast, leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Again, head over to chartmogul.com to try Chartmogul today.